Our topic this week regarding Abraham from various different chapters, Rich Abraham, and how you also can prosper like he did. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, and we've read this in past weeks, that Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. So this week we're looking at the possessions that he had. So he had, according to this text, possessions he'd gathered while he was in Haran, as well as able to purchase servants to work for him with and manage, no doubt, those possessions, as we'll see why he needed servants in another verse or so here. Yeah, here we are. In Genesis 13, verse 1, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the Negev. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. So he had possessions, livestock, and very rich, silver and gold. And in verse 5, still Genesis 13, Abram had flocks and herds and tents, the land was not able to support them, for their possessions were so great. So, so many livestock, not enough grass for them, great amount of possessions. Genesis 14, verse 14, Abram armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. So if he has 318 armed servants, how many unarmed servants did he have? And how many uh, spouses did these armed servants have and children? So easily a thousand people living with him under his command, uh, employed by him. So he was very rich, rich in possessions, silver, gold, and in, uh, in wealth, in herds and tents, and lots of tents for a thousand people or more. And so Abraham was rich with a spouse, family. At this point in the story, we don't have children yet, but he had his nephew Lot. He had friends. Uh, we read in the past where when he went to fight and to deliver Lot and to fight against those who had taken uh, Lot captive and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he had three different others who joined with him in the battle, and no doubt those three brought their family and their servants and their trained armed servants. And so he had alliances with them, he had friends, uh, he had silver and gold, as we read, and possessions that he had acquired, and flocks, herds, tents, homes, and servants and staff. So really, you know, every aspect, and he has health, he's 75, he was 75 at one point in the story, we'll see, he, uh, he lives much longer than that, I think to 175. Right? And so God had blessed him with riches of family, spouse, later on child, uh, friends, health, house, possessions, as well as financially. Right? So uh, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, he was prospering financially. He was prospering and he was rich. Some people think it's not good to be rich. Some people think that godly people shouldn't be rich. 
And people think, oh, that's, that's sinful to be rich. Or maybe they don't say it that way, but you know, subconsciously they'll feel guilty if they have any riches or maybe look down on someone who has wealth, uh, even if they're godly. Somehow they think it shouldn't be there. Uh, it shouldn't, but we see biblically, God blessed Abraham and he did have riches. And so it's not a sin to be rich. Some people even misquote the Bible and say, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says at all. It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And there is a difference. It's okay to have money as long as money doesn't have you. And that's the difference, right? So Abraham had possessions, but he didn't allow it to control him. Didn't become his God. At least we don't have any record of that. And so there is a balance in that. So how can we prosper? Bible says in Psalm 112, verse 1, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. He will not be afraid of evil things. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established, and he will not be afraid. Again, we have a description of someone who is prospering physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and financially, who fears the Lord. Again, God gives his blessing to prospering in those ways. Now, there are some who teach that everybody who fears the Lord will be rich, and that's not what the Bible teaches at all. There are plenty of people in the Bible who served the Lord, loved the Lord, and they weren't rich, right? Yeshua himself as a prime example. He said he didn't even have a place to lay down his head. Right? He never owned any possessions. He died, and the only thing they had to divide up was the clothing on his back. And so there's not a get-rich uh, plan of the Bible, but it is different to, uh, for it to be God's will for us to be rich or God's will for us to not have financial riches. And it's another thing for... God to maybe will for us to have more than we have, but because of our unwise choices, we don't have as much as we should that can be used for God's honor and glory. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Not a, again, a get-rich-quick scheme, but how to be in God's will and utilize the talents and the gifts that he has given to us to prosper as he would see for each of us individually. And again, whatever that is. And again, it's the same on uh, health, right? So the, the, the prospering in health. Uh, God doesn't, well, he says that he wishes above all things that we be in health and prosper even in our soul, as our soul prosper. But we know that some people are born with disabilities that others don't have. And so not everybody is designed or, or God's will for us to all have some kind of amazing health, and we all die anyway, right? And I don't know of anyone who's lived as long as Abraham even did, right? And so our measurement of health and fitness is, is, uh, is variable and, and dependent on a lot of factors. But again, it's one thing to, you know, maybe be born with not as much health as maybe some other people have, but it's another thing to do something stupid that affects our health so that we're not as healthy as we could have been if we didn't do something that, uh, that put our health in jeopardy, right? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. How to not do stupid things right? <laughs> with, with the blessings that God has blessed us with. 
Deuteronomy 8.11, do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, which I command you today, least when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, then you say, my power and might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Here again, Deuteronomy in the Torah, God is describing to Moses uh, a person of, of, uh, of, of possession, someone who has been blessed with means of various different kinds, right? Eating, having food, and being full. You can imagine health with that, having a home, and flocks, multiple flocks, as well as cash, silver, and gold uh, multiplied, right? All these things. And so he's not, again, saying it's wrong, but he's saying then sometimes those things then cause us to forget about God. And that is a horrible thing. And maybe that's why for some people God doesn't want us to be rich. He'd rather that we don't forget about him than to not have financial wealth and forget about him. That our heart gets lifted up. Or maybe God wants riches for an individual. But because of the tendency to become proud because of it, or become lifted up or to take glory to themselves, God is not able then to pour out the blessing that he would want to pour on, on that person if that person would remain humble and use the funds to further God's kingdom and to be a blessing and to be an example of stewardship. And so he says sometimes we forget the Lord and that it then takes the glory to himself that my power, my might of my hand has gained me wealth. And this text in Deuteronomy chapter 8 continues in verse 16, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So God at times humbles us to bring us back to him. Sometimes he blesses us with health or finances or friends to draw us to him. And if that doesn't work, sometimes he'll then humble us to bring him, us to him. He also tests us, and we see that in the life of Abraham. He tested Abraham regarding his son, loyalty to God first. He tested Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, put that tree there to test them. So it says that he tests them, and he might test us. And we're going to see one of the tests that God places upon us. And all of it, the test, as well as the humbling, as well as the prosperity, yeah, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, is, or the lack thereof, is all for our good in the end. And so at whatever state we are, as Paul said, whether to have or not have, I have found in all things to be content. That in the end, it's all for our good. And that's the key, that God wants good for us. God wants to bless us and help us. And so even in the times where he needs to humble us, it's for our own good. Even when he is testing us, it's for our own good. Because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy eternal life. 
and to be a blessing to others. And that we remember him. That it's him. It's all him. He is the one who gives us the power to get wealth. Again, whatever type of wealth. Here it's talking financially wealth, but any kind of wealth. Health wealth, social interaction wealth. It's him. It's all him. We have nothing. We can do nothing. We get nothing. If we think we've earned anything by our own strength, our own wit, our own abilities, well, we can lose it in a minute. Think your mind is so wise and so bright. No, we can lose our ability to think wisely very quickly. People come down with dementia or Alzheimer's or a car accident. Anything can happen in a literal second and change our abilities or the skill of our hands or our muscles or our abilities. That can all change in a moment. It is God who gives us the ability. God who gives us the, the, the talents to use for his honor and glory. And thus he deserves the credit for everything, everything that we have. Try breathing for a few minutes without God. Right? <laughs> it's not easy. Right? Everything we have, life all comes through him and because of him. We're dependent on him. And he wants us to remind us, he wants to remind us of that. So what lessons can we learn from this rich Abraham for ourselves? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So he believed God. Hebrews, that was from James, let's see, James 2, verse 23. The next text is from Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 8. Abraham, when called to go, obeyed and went. And so he believed and he obeyed. Genesis 13, 3. Abraham went to the place of the altar, and there he called on the name of the Lord. So he worshiped God, built altars to the Lord, gave offerings to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And in Genesis 14, verse 20, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. And the word tithe is 10%. So Abraham gave 10% of all that he had to Melchizedek. Those are some of the things that we see that Abraham did. He believed in God. He believed in God's promises. He, uh, by God's grace, he obeyed God. He worshiped God consistently. He gave offerings to God, and he gave 10% plus offerings to God. Those are some of the things we just saw in those texts that give us an outline of what Abraham did, and God blessed him and gave him, and was able to entrust him with all the various different prosperities that we saw. Health, wealth, socially, physically, mentally, spiritually, financially. And he passed this down to his son and grandson, because we have Jacob, his grandson, in Genesis chapter 28, about 14 chapters from where we were just reading, verse 22, it says, Of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so Abraham gave a tenth, and Jacob also gave a tenth of all. Actually, going back a slide, so of all these various different riches that Abraham was blessed with, and we've looked at... Uh, some of them in other chapters of Abraham that we've looked at, and we'll look at some more when we get to further on the life of Abraham. We're going to focus today primarily on that he gave 10% offering and how that aspect blessed his life and how it can be a blessing to us as well, and a test as well. So Jacob did the same thing, Abraham's grandson. 
And some people might think, well, that's only for rich people. Abraham was blessed with possessions, so it was easy for him to give a tenth of all. And Jacob, no doubt, had possessions also and gave a tenth of all. Although the time that Jacob made that promise, he had nothing. <laughs> he had a rock for a pillow at that point in his life. Uh, but then we have the experience of Elijah meeting this widow lady who did have something, but not much. Comes to her, she's gathering some twigs, and he says, make me some food, I'm hungry. And she says, well, to be honest with you, I'm just gathering these sticks, these twigs here. I'm going to make a little fire. I have a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to mix them together, make two little cakes for my son and myself, and that's our last meal, and then we're going to starve to death. And he says, that's fine. Give me some first. And you think she might have thrown the sticks at him and said, what are you nuts? Get out of here, you lunatic. You know, call for some help to get this guy away. But no, she did as he said. And she gave to him first. Even though she literally had almost nothing. She still put him first. Put God first, God's servant first. And God blessed. And throughout the time of the famine, neither her flour nor her oil ever went dry. Putting God first is a principle that applies to all, whether rich or poor. What do you think would be more blessed? A congregation of, let's say, 300 people that has, let's say, two people who earn a million a year each, and they're faithfully giving their tithe on that, and the rest of the congregation is not giving anything or hardly anything at all, but they have a plenty because these two millionaires are giving tithes and offerings faithfully. Or another congregation that has, let's say, 50 people, and all of them are poverty level or lower, but every single one of them, 100% of them, are faithfully giving tithes and offerings. Which do you think is better off? I can guarantee you the second one is better off. Absolutely. Even though the other one would have much more wealth, the second one is much more better off because it's for our own good that counts. Leviticus 27, verse 30, all the tithe is the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So that 10% that Abraham gave to Melchizedek, that Jacob promised to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. Really, all that he gives us, because it's God who gives us the power to get wealth, all of it is really his by right. So he allows 100% of it to run through our hands, but he says 10% of it, it is mine. So like a manager, he lets two, ten, uh, all of it go through, but then 10% of it he claims for himself. And that's a pretty good deal when you think about it. Could you imagine if you worked for a company and they gave you keys to the truck and they told you to go down to a loading dock and to fill the truck uh, full with whatever product. Just fill it all the way. They got There's going to be some people there. I'll help you load it. Fill that truck all the way up. And you go and you do so and you drive back and the owner says, okay, I want you to unload 10% of that here at the warehouse 
and you can keep 90% of the rest of it. That's a pretty good deal, wouldn't you think? Yeah. It's all his. But he let you keep 90% of it. And that's how it is really with God. All of it's his. He owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. Everything's his. And he just asks for 10% of it back. He says it's holy. It's his. Malachi 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yeah, you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Sounds like a pretty horrible thing, robbed from God. He says, in tithe and offerings. Those are two separate things. We'll be looking at that in a minute. What's the difference between the two? He says, we're robbing from him when we're taking from the tithes and the offerings. Again, we've already seen the tithe is holy. It's God's. And if we're using that for ourselves, then we are stealing from God. We're robbing God. Could you imagine someone robbing from God? Imagine someone reaching into an offering plate or the tzedakah box and taking money out. Seems like a horrible thought. God says we do that when we withhold the tithe and offerings, stealing from God. Continue Malachi 3, verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Right, so a congregation of 300 members, only two people returning a faithful tithe, even though they're millionaires. Cursed with a curse. Not necessarily those two millionaires, but the whole congregation, the whole nation, cursed with a curse. Might have lots of funds. Might look very good. But cursed with a curse because they're robbing from God. Still Malachi 3, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. It's become popular in recent years with our kind of a generation that we have now today that want to do things on their own, kind of independent thinkers. Think, oh, I can just do God's tithe however I want. I see this homeless person, I'll give it to him. I'll do this, I'll give here, I'll give there. I'm giving the tithe. But God's word specifically says, bring it into the storehouse. And then there may be food in his house. The offerings are for the other things. There's, again, the difference between the tithe and the offerings. One of the differences. Used for a different purpose. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. What a wonderful promise. All right, so the one congregation with the, the two millionaires, but as a nation, as a whole, the 300 or the 298 other people are being cursed with a curse. But the congregation of 50, all of them below the poverty level, it says that they will be received such a blessing that they won't have room to receive it. Now, it might be financial blessings eventually, may or not be. But God promises they will be blessed with such blessings that they won't even know how to room to receive it. Maybe it'll be blessings of love or fellowship or goodness and kindness or caring for one another. The more important things than the wealth, but wealth as well could easily be there if that's God's plan. But they're much better off receiving these promises from God, these blessings from God. God says, try it out. Try me in this. Test me in this, he's saying. He's inviting us to test him. He's saying, how's it working for you? 
It's not working. So, well, then try my way. Give to me first. Try it out. He promises. Try it out for three months. Right? We read these stories each week. Brenda read the story this week. How people bless are blessed. How they've given faithfully, whether their time or their talents or their finances, and God has blessed over and over and over and over again. He says, test me. Try it out for three months. What could be the worst thing that happens, right? Have a little bit less than you thought? Or you might end up with a whole lot more than you could have ever dreamed. Poured out such a blessing that there's not room enough to receive it. And so not only is he inviting us to try him to test him, but really this is the test, one of the tests. There's not a lot of tests the Bible gives, but this is one of the tests, one of the clear, distinct tests that he, that he gives towards us. Return. It's a test of faith. Do we believe God? It's a test of obedience. Kind of like he tested Abraham. Leave Ur. He doesn't ask all of us to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land he doesn't, that we don't know. One thing he does give to all is this test. Whether we will test him in this. Sabbath is another one of those that he gives to all. A test. A test of loyalty. It's a universal test. Written throughout the Bible. And for all ages, God's test, to return to him what is his. And with the test, passing the test, we have a wonderful promise. Still Malachi 3, verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God wants wonderful blessings for us. Again, that congregation, two millionaires, curse by curse, smaller congregation, all nations will call them blessed. Which one does better in God's eyes? Which one will do better here on this earth? Certainly the one, or 100%, are faithful to the Lord and serving the Lord. And so it mentioned tithes and offerings. So tithe is a set amount, 10%, no matter what we have. If you have, if you find, if you have nothing, you have absolutely nothing. You have literally zero. How much do you need to give back to God? 10%. 10% and that is? Zero, right. Now, I've never met anyone who has zero. I've met homeless people who had cigarettes. And, you know, they always have something, right? You know, uh, but uh, you know, so give 10% of the cigarettes, whatever, you know. But uh, if you found a do dollar floating down the road, and you pick that up, then God says 10 cents of that is his. Right? Someone gives you a dollar, 10 cents of that is his. That's tithe. Right? Brought it to the storehouse and used, biblically used for uh, the Levites, the ministers, in God's household. And the offerings is different. The offerings doesn't mention a percentage for the offerings in the Bible. Sometimes it calls free will offerings. We get to do how much, whatever we want, whatever percentage we want. And we've read some stories here. Some people have given 10, even 15%, a total of 25% tithe plus the offerings. And God has blessed them. Some of the stories we've read, they start out with not much means, 
But then in giving that much, God bless them, and they have more than enough in their lives. And so the offerings, again, is a set amount that we give, and it's used for uh, blessing uh, the upkeep of the building, the ministry, uh, literature, um, uh, lots of different uh, uh, outreaches, and helping financially or food-wise, clothing-wise, various different things, offerings can be used for in personal ministering to the population, to people in general, both in-house and out-of-house. That's the difference, a little difference between the little explanation of the differences between tithes and offerings we see in the scriptures. So kind of another illustration of that, if let's say you ask me to borrow my lawnmower, lawnmower is broken, whatever, and so you ask to borrow my lawnmower, I let you lend you my lawnmower, and you cut your grass with it. Uh, you know, three weeks later, I go and knock on your door. I go, you know, my grass is starting to grow real tall. I can have my lawnmower back. And if you don't give me my lawnmower back, what are you? A thief. Right, you're a thief. You stole my lawnmower, right? You're refusing to give it back. You are now a thief. It's my lawnmower. I lent it to you. I let you use it. You're not giving it back to me. You're a thief. Now, if you do give it back to me, what are you? What are you being? Responsible. Responsible. Hey, you're just really being honest. Right? You're being responsible. Right? You just gave me back what was mine. Right? And if you gave it back with the same amount of gas I gave you, you know, hey, that's terrific, right? You're being responsible. Do you deserve a pat on the back for that, an award for that? Was that righteousness that you gave me back my lawnmower? You know, was it any great thing, any good deed? No. You were just responsible, you're just really being honest, right? And so when we return the tithe back to God, we don't deserve any pat on the back, we haven't attained any righteousness or anything. All we're doing is being honest. <laughs> God said it's his, it's holy to the Lord, and we're just giving back 10% of the 100% that he gave to us. Right? Now, if when you give me back my lawnmower, you give me a gift, let's say a fruit basket or something like that, and say, thank you so much for lending me uh, your lawnmower. It really was helpful. I needed it while I was waiting on mine to get repaired. I appreciate it. And so here I you know, filled it up with gas, and, and here's this nice little gift for you. Now what are you being? Grateful. Right? You're being grateful. You're being thankful. Right? So now you're showing appreciation for the gift that has been poured out upon you. And so that's where the offerings are. The offerings are our demonstration of how much we appreciate what God has done for us. And so the more appreciative we are, the more thankful we are for what he has blessed us with, that he's given us the ability to breathe and health and strength and ability to gain wealth and fingers and eyes and ability to have friends and, and uh, associations and congregational friends and blessings of his word, and life, and clothing, and food on our table, how much we appreciate that, we can demonstrate in the offerings, whatever percentage we want to give, in showing how thankful we are to God that he has blessed us. And so again, that's the difference with the tithe and the offerings. So another little difference in that. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, for, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Right, so principle there, what you, how you measure it, be measured back to you. God says another wonderful promise, as we give and return to him, he'll give it back to us, 
and even better than we gave to him. He'll take what we gave to him, he'll add to it, good measure to it, he'll press it down, stuff it in there, right? shake it together. You ever get a box of cereal that says, might have settled because of settling, right? it might not be a full box because of settling. Right? They're saying it was full at one time, but it got shaken in the truck and, it, and the air settled down, right? Then you take that box and you crush it down, crush it, crush it down, put more in, crush it down, shake it, crush it down, get all the air out of it, get, crush it more, and just keeps filling it and filling it and filling it until it's overflowing, is what he says he does for us. Fills it and stuffs it, stuffs the bag, pushes it down, grabs some more clothing for you, stuffs it in there, and just keeps filling it for you and giving it to you until it's overflowing, is what he pictures for us. Given, he'll give so much more that we won't have room to receive it. That it'll overflow and be a blessing to others. But he invites us to keep the cycle going. Right? And where does it start? Where does the cycle start? Nope. Not us. God. God gives us the ability to get well. We can stop it right there and refuse to give back. But if we return to him what is his, then he will keep the cycle going and press it down and overflow it more. And then we continue to show our thankfulness and faithfulness and give back to him. The cycle keeps going. But he starts it, but he gives us the ability to stop it or keep it rolling. That's up to us. It all starts with him, not us. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Similar to what we read in Luke. Sow sparingly will reap sparingly. But sow generously, and God will bless us back. As we give, so we will receive. Now, that shouldn't be the motive. Our motive shouldn't be so we give so that we're given back. But that's just the natural way it works with God. God is a giver, and if we enter in with giving with him, we enter into fellowship with him. Matthew 6, 9. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So if we try and hoard it for ourselves, thinking we're helping ourselves, thinking it's going to last longer, it will, without God's hand over it, without God's protection over it, it's all going to end anyway. And there used to be a bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? That is so wrong, right? He who dies with the most toys still has no toys, right? He's still dead, right? <laughs> Either way, right? Whether he had a lot of toys and died or they had no toys and died, they're both dead, right? And they have nothing at that point, right? So one might have eternal life and one might not have eternal life, but it's not based on how many toys they had in this life, right? So uh, the amount we have in this life is really only a test on whether or not we get to inherit eternal life. So don't lay it up here. It's not about here. It's about heaven. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in nor steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Thus, it's the test. It's the ultimate test. It's the ultimate demonstration of where our heart is. Who do we really love? Oh, we can sing songs and we can say, I love you, God, I love you, God, I love you, God. But then when he applies the test to us, to just be honest, and then to show appreciation and thankfulness and gratefulness, do we pass the test? Do we pass the test of faith that believes that we'll be able to do just as well on 80, or 90, or 80, or 70%, or whatever, as we will on 100% is a test of faith. Do we trust him that we'll not be afraid, that our hearts will be established, that our hearts will be content in trusting the Lord and living within his means and in obedience to him, believing and then obeying and following him in this area. And so it's a good way for us to see where our heart really is. Just look at our bank account. Just look at how we've spent money over the last year. It's a good test. Because where our treasure is gone, that's where our heart really is. And so it's a pretty simple demonstration. Just look at your payments. Let's see if it matches up with God's plan. In first, Second Corinthians 9, verse 7, so that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So don't give grudgingly. And don't give out of necessity. Don't give like you feel you have to give. It shouldn't be the motive. Yes, it is God's. Yes, we're stealing from him if we don't. But that shouldn't be our motive. Our motive should be cheerfully giving to him. Now, how do we go from either not giving to giving cheerfully, or giving grudgingly to giving cheerfully, or giving out of necessity, or feel like we have to, we need to, to strict obedience to giving cheerfully? How do we make that bridge? How do we end up giving cheerfully? Well, you can't make yourself Give cheerfully. It's not something you can produce out of yourself. You can't just smile and then give cheerfully and it's going to change how you feel internally. So really, the only way to change from not giving or giving grudgingly or necessity to cheerfully is we can't. But God can. God can change us. We can't change ourselves but we can surrender, we can die to self, we can die to the selfish carnal nature that's stealing from God, we can die to the grudging that's giving grudgingly, we can die to the nature that's legalistic and doing it out of necessity, out of uh, forced obedience. Die to it. Accept our death in Messiah, the old carnal nature to die. Or the selfish nature, or the grudging nature, or the greedy nature, or the unhappy nature, or the legalistic nature, let it die. Accept our death in the Messiah. And let the Holy Spirit fill us up. And the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit is God. 
And God is giver. God is a cheerful giver. God so loved the world, he gave his most precious possession for us. And he continues to give continually for us. He gives. That's his nature. And when we're filled with him, his nature will become our nature, and then we become cheerful givers because it's him that's living it out of us, out of us, and through us. And if we think about how much God has given to us, we would appreciate it so much more. You think about the great sacrifice. Yes, Yeshua dying for us. Yes, his, his, his giving his life for us. It's enormous. But he continues and has continued. He's continued to sacrifice for humanity. I mean, I'm sure he was doing very good before he created Adam and Eve. I'm sure he was pretty happy up there before this whole thing, before Lucifer's fall. And how much he has given up for us. Could have just blotted this planet out. Could have just destroyed Lucifer from the beginning and just gone on. But out of great love for us, so that some will be saved, he continues to sacrifice. I'm sure the angels had it pretty cush before the fall. But now they're in the middle of a war have been for thousands of years. Every day they got to be on alert. Every day they're in the battle. Every day they're protecting us or running errands for God in our behalf. Every day they're fighting against evil angels. They have sacrificed greatly for God in our behalf. We don't even see it. We don't even notice it all. How many times our lives are spared? How many times situations are averted because of the angels, because of God's hand, because of the Holy Spirit? Constantly, constantly at work. He's got the whole universe and all his attention be stuck on this one little speck of a dust of a planet. What a sacrifice God has given. He's letting the 99 others kind of run on their own, trusting them, and focusing his attention on this one lost place. God is a giver. He's given his time. He's given his heart. He's given his all for us. And when we're filled with his spirit, we will naturally have that same attitude. And so this is a test where we feel like we don't want to give and we're not giving. Then that should be a red light going off in our minds that we're not in harmony with God, that we're not being filled with God's spirit. Or if we're giving, but we're not really liking it, we're not really wanting to, we're giving grudgingly, internally we're not happy about it, then that should be a red light. Maybe one time you were a cheer from giving. Right now, maybe I'm not, maybe you're not. That's all right. And then we just say, God, sorry, got off track, carnal nature has come back in, I surrender it, I confess it, I accept my death again in Yeshua, fill me again with your Holy Spirit and make me a cheerful giver again. We're giving out of necessity, and maybe one time we were giving liberally, and now we're giving because we have to, because it's become routine, because it's become habitual for us, but not cheerfully. And again, surrender to the Lord, accept his death, die with him, and let a new life be created in you. One filled with God, one who loves to give, and cheerfully gives, and has given all for you. And then we will become cheerful givers. Be honest, give back to him what is his, 
and will thankfully give over and above that. And God's work will finish on this earth. I believe if every professed believer had been obedient to God, faithfully and cheerfully giving the tithes and offerings as God's outlined in his word, we'd be in heaven already. This gospel would have gone to the world long before this. We would have passed the test. Self would have been cleansed out of our hearts and mind. God would have blessed us, blessed this world, overabundant flowing. Other nations would have seen the blessing on God's people. And the end would come. And we'd be in heaven already. But we hold back, and we hold back, and we hold back, and we're just delaying everything and risking our own salvation. And people will be lost as we don't give. There'll be less people in the kingdom of heaven as we don't return faithfully to God what is his and to his service. The life and death consequences of what God outlines. And again, it's all for our own good. Returning the 10% and returning an offering on top of that, it's for our own good. He doesn't need it. He reveals to us where our treasure is, where our heart is, reveals to us who is first in our lives, and it removes the selfishness. And it allows us to participate in God's great work. Whatever talents we have, some have God's given more than others, but one, all, one gift that we have all given, one responsibility that we've all been given is to return to him what he has blessed us with. And as we enter into that individually and corporately, God's work moves forward powerfully and will spread throughout the world. And so as we prepare to pray, God is convicting you. Maybe you haven't been giving faithfully. Maybe you've been stealing from God, not been returning a faithful tithe, not returning what is his. And God's convicting you in that area. The moment when we pray, you can surrender that to God. It'll take a, a miracle of God. It'll take the power of God. Change your heart. Give you the ability to do it, but he does it. He's done it down through the ages. And he can make you like Abraham so that you willingly give it. Then in a moment when we pray, you can surrender that to the Lord, confess it, accept his Holy Spirit, his blood to forgive you, and his Holy Spirit to empower you to give faithfully moving forward. Secondly, maybe you've been returning a faithful tithe, but not giving an offering, so you've been honest, but haven't been thankful, haven't demonstrated that, and offerings above that. And God's convicting you in that area and want to give faithfully in tithes and offerings. In a moment we pray, do the same thing. Confess that you hadn't do, been doing it in the past. Accept his forgiveness because of his sacrifice. And accept his Holy Spirit to empower you to do so. Moving forward. Third, maybe you've been giving, but giving grudgingly or legalistically or out of necessity or in some ways that hasn't been cheerful. Maybe at one time cheerful, but not cheerful now. If you're not a cheerful giver, then ask God to forgive you. Giving for wrong motives and in your own power and in your own strength. Accept his forgiveness through the blood of the Messiah. Accept the power of the Holy Spirit to make you a cheerful giver. 
Maybe you have been giving faithfully in tithes and in offerings. And if so, praise God. And then in a moment when we pray, let's take this opportunity to ask God to use those funds for expanding his kingdom. That none of it would be wasted, none of it would be misused, but that all of it would be used so that there'll be more people in the kingdom of heaven as a result. So if any of those areas apply to you, or maybe some other area God brought to your mind and heart, let us pray. Let God do his work. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with goodness, with your goodness, with your love, with life, with the promise of everlasting life. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for giving to us. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Thank you, all of heaven is in harmony with this and in working towards our salvation. Thank you for all the angels, cherubim, seraphim, and all the other kinds, myriads and myriads that are working tirelessly day and night in our behalf. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Yeshua, for bearing our punishment and dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and filling us. Live inside us. Fill us with your mind. Fill us with your heart. Fill us with your character. Make us honest. Make us cheerful. Make us generous. And use these funds and use our time and our talents that you've given to us. Use them for your honor and glory, for the salvation of souls. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.